the average American household has considerably more cash on hand, generally in the bank or a money market fund, than they had before the pandemic. A lot more, like yeah. 40% more right now. They used to have twice as much, but now they got 40% more, which means they have room to spend before the hitting discomfort. And the backside to that is the household debt being carried by the average household as a percentage of real disposable income is significantly like about 20% below where it was before the pandemic. People are low on debt, high on cash. People just have a tendency to spend their excess money. And if they're low on debt, if their credit card bills are or they're not getting at all uncomfortable with the credit card bills because they're low, they tend to go borrow more money and buy things. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, we come to you bald. Yes, yes, we are bald. And bearded. So we're not bald-faced. Not at all. So you won't find us ever doing bald-faced lies or truths because we have beards. We do have bald heads, so that's a different... We could have a bald-headed truth. There we are. Uh, we also like really bad puns, if you hadn't picked up on that. So those are our first two major disclosures of the day. This is the Personal Wealth Coach, a, a program on finance, the economy, personal investments, and impersonal investments. Um, was an impersonal investment. One that's not yours, I guess, or mine, uh, or, or rude. A rude investment might be impersonal. Yeah. Uh, we also have some other disclosures to give before we actually get into the meat of this program. Unless you're a vegan, and then it's almost meat of the program. We're getting into the vegetables of the program. Yes, right. So the potatoes, good vegetable there. Wait, no, that's, wait, it is, but it isn't. Wait, is that a vegetable or a carb? It's a vegetable carb. Yes, very difficult. Uh how we separate things into all vegetables are good and wait, this is the wrong subject. Are we on the wrong program? But let's get off of nutrition for a moment and on back on to disclosures. Sorry about that. We took a wrong turn back in Albuquerque. First, it is July 1st. It is the beginning of the second half of 2023. Uh, yes. Welcome to the second half. The halftime show is us. So I guess. Uh, we are going to disclose, which in other halftime shows are called um, wardrobe malfunctions. Disclosure beginning. Oh, put that back on. Sorry. <clears throat> uh, yes, I've dated myself there. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, which, not coincidentally, is also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. The two guys talking to you are the principals of that firm. That's also not coincidental. The program, the name of the program, the program itself predates the firm by a pretty good amount of time. Uh, so we've been talking about this a long time. And then we started a company to give fiduciary investment advice. What does that mean? Well, it means advice in the best interest of the client, which by definition, we can't give on the air because we don't know you. Or maybe we do, but we don't know that other person over there. And if we did, it wouldn't be private for us to talk to you and them at the same time. So you can see there's issues. Uh, we have many issues. This is we, we have so many issues. We have back issues of issues. Uh, so we can't give advice on the air. We have to give education on the air, which is 
close to the same thing. It gives you the rules and the tools to do what you should be doing, why we give advice when we give advice. Um, and just because the firm is registered with the SEC, that isn't kind a laurel, an achievement, or anything that we plaster around saying, look at what we have done. It is a requirement for us to tell you that, and it does not imply in any way, shape, form, or uh, conceptual fashion that the SEC somehow favors us. They don't favor. They disfavor. That is their professional responsibility is to go around disfavoring people. So we have to tell you that as well. Um, we don't pay for this program. We are not paid for this program. We have prof been professionally unemployed doing this program for 25 years now for me and 26 for the older Baldy. Uh, older Baldy, by the way, Jeff, is younger Baldy, Jake's dad. And the reverse is similar. Older Baldy's son is not his dad. So, I'm my own grandpa. Right. He's, he is his own grandpa, and if you catch that, then you have a smile on your face at the moment. Um, and then the very last, but the not the least in any way, shape, form, or fashion disclosure is this one for you, sir. Okay. The information that we present on this educational radio and internet program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or in, and or completeness of said information. We do, however, warranty, guarantee, and make certain that all incomplete information that is delivered is incomplete. There, properly warrantied, signed um, on the internet, and in radio form, in audible form only. <clears throat> all right, which is legal, by the way. Just, just as you I mean, you can get a verbal authorization from a scamming telemarketer. So, I guess we just signed a contract. We will endeavor to only give incomplete information that is truly incomplete. Thank you. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, what happened in the market this week? Uh, it was really a rather pleasant week for those of us who follow what goes on in the market. The S&P 500 stock index, otherwise affectionately known as the SPX, which is the prime one, I think, for following what the market is doing. Uh, was up 2.35% this week to 44.50.38. 2.35% is a lot in a single week. And it's one of those reasons that if you've ever seen the uh, analyses, and I've seen many of them, that says that if you're just missing a few weeks or a few days, if you just happen to miss the right days, you miss most of what the market does on the upside. And unfortunately, market timers are in the habit of missing those few days. Um, the S&P 500 is now up almost 16% the first half of 2023, since the first half is behind us. It's 24% higher than it was last October 12th. It's almost 40% higher than it was three years ago, but it is still down 7% from its record high in January of 2022. And the other index we follow, the CRSP U.S. Midcap Value Index, which is kind of at the other end of the market since Large growth, large growth dominates the S&P 500. That's very large companies that are priced based on growth expectations. Value companies are companies that are priced based on the intrinsic value that they have, uh, the stuff that they own, and so on. Uh, the mid-cap value is the other end of the market from the large-cap growth. And it was up 3.54% for the week to 2391.52. So it's... It's cruising along nicely. It's up 2.2% this year, which means it's not doing as well for the this 
last six months, but it's cruising along nicely. It's about 8% below its record that it's set at the same time as the S&P 500 at the beginning of 2022. U.S. Treasury 10-year note climbed a bit to 3.81. Now, that's near the high end of where it is traded all this year so far. If it keeps going up, and I kind of think it will, um, we could see the longer maturity treasuries and longer maturity bonds starting to rise because there's a sense that maybe the maybe Chairman Powell at the Federal Reserve and the other bank heads around the world know what they're talking about when they say interest rates will be higher longer than most people expect. And people are beginning to believe them a little bit. Um, so the highest yield in the treasury market right now is the six-month treasury bill, which has a yield of 5.47%, which is pretty good by any stretch of the imagination. Um, unless, of course, you own, I guess there's no way that that isn't good unless you're trying to borrow money. Uh, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil, that's WTI, crept up a bit too to $70.46. And just to put that in perspective, two and a half years ago, it traded pretty consistently for a while at about 30 to $35 a barrel. It's now up to $70.46, um, which means that it's twice the price it was two and a half years ago when everybody assumed the United States was going to plunge and the world was going to plunge into a disastrous depression because of COVID. Um, interestingly also is that June of last year, just last year, it seems like it was a lot longer ago than that, oil was $120 a barrel a year ago. 70 doesn't sound all that bad when you look at $120 a barrel as the alternative. Um, and we're cruising along and that's the markets. Nice. Nice markets at that. The big news, and we mentioned this in the newsletter, uh, the U.S. economy, there was some really big economic news. Oh, and yeah. I looked around for headlines it's announcing hiding. it and didn't see them. Hiding in the it's back or not there, there at all. Yeah. As the, the first estimate by the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the Commerce Department as to as to the GDP for the first quarter in the United States, well, that's a mouthful, was that it was 1.3%. We were growing at an annualized rate of 1.3% after doing 2.9% the quarter before. Yeah, that was their wow. best, guess, best guess at the beginning. 1.3, that's a big slowdown, or it's a big that, slowdown in growth. That fed fuel to the assumption that we're about to, by the second quarter, we will be in a severe recession. And a lot of people believe that. A lot was written about it. However, now, then later they came in with their second guess. They they always say this is estimate, first estimate. First estimate, uh, second estimate, third estimate, and that's usually the final. They don't actually ever say this is really what it was. They're all estimates. Right. And somewhere down the road in a few years, they may change it and come back and say that the number they just gave was incorrect. But most of the time, this is the number. So it was raised to 1.7, which was still not too exciting. But this week, the BEA came out with their third estimate of growth, GDP growth in the United States in the first quarter, and it's 2%. Now, that is a huge jump from 1.3 to 2. Yeah. And uh, the same day, the uh, Atlanta Fed came out with a guesstimate as to what, and it's not really an estimate, it's a guesstimate of what the GDP was running in the second quarter. They're saying two. Yeah. Uh, some other people are, no, they're saying, I'm sorry, they're saying 1.7, but some other people, I think Moody's is saying two. S&P Global said something two. up in the two area. Yeah. So this is the interesting thing. The United States economy is growing at about 2% a year. When you say, well, 2% doesn't sound like much. Oh, yes, it is. For the largest economy in the world, ours, and the age and everything else of our economy, 2% is about as fast as we can handle without generating more inflation. Yeah. We can only grow. So if, when you get so big, uh, the law of diminishing returns begins to set in. 
2% for an economy like the United States is a huge growth. Um, as far as absolute value is concerned, our 2% growth will be significantly factor, fa- I'm sorry, will be consistent, cons- oh, man, I'm getting my tangle, tangle up here. will be considerably faster and more than China's 5% growth. In other words, the absolute number, if you measure it in dollars, the absolute GDP growth in dollars, the United States, if we cruise along at 2% this year, will be more than China's 5%. That's the difference in the size of our economy. And we're not dependent on exports. We're dependent upon the consumer, That's that's our, which the Chinese would love to be, because as long as they're dependent upon exports, they are dependent upon people outside of China for making their economy run. And well, there's another piece in there, because... I want to make sure people understand this. If you measure the absolute size of China, 5% is faster than 2%. They measure their economy a little differently. So what, what old Baldi is saying there is correct. Our, our growth is actually faster. I just mentioned that 40% right now of the GDP of China is wrapped up in real estate. And that's not real. Get it? What I did there with that? With the, yeah. It's, yeah. It's real estate. Yeah. They, a, a lot of the real estate is artificially inflated and not occupied. Artificial estate artificial state it's unreal estate yes there we go that's that's was, it may be coined by pixar though so we have to then there was another thing that i personally find fascinating during the first quarter every survey of consumers said they're pessimistic about the future yep. and the pundits said oh we're going to have a recession because we're going to stop spending while they were reporting to the people on the phone calls that they were pessimistic about the future and think things are going to go downhill and everything's going to fall apart they started spending they, more <laughs> They spent, they had a 16.3% growth in the purchase of durable goods. And what are durable goods? Things like washing machines and dryers and cars, things that are supposed to last for years. While they were saying, we don't think the future, we're, we're, we're going to cut back because we don't think the future is going, we're going to do very well in the future. And they promptly went out and bought a bunch of stuff that is designed to last in the future. They're making big expenditures for the future while they're saying, no, we think we're pessimistic about the future. Both of those, and, by the way, both of those are considered growth um, signals in our book. When the consumers say they're pessimistic about the future, they're usually buying things. And durable good orders are massively good predictors of the future uh, economically. So between them saying we're pessimistic and the durable good orders, those both meet our criteria for those are two major growth signals. Yep. And it's counterintuitive when people say they're pessimistic about the future. Why would they go out and buy a washing machine? Because they might need one in the future when it's bad. But the act of buying the washing machine improves the economy, which is a counterintuitive solution to their dilemma. Then there was another one came out. We and we talked about this before. I mean, this is background. The average American household has considerably more cash on hand, generally in the bank or a money market fund, than they had before the pandemic. A lot more, like yeah, forty percent more right now. They used to have twice as much, but now they got forty percent more, which means they have room to spend before the hitting discomfort. And the backside to that is the household debt being carried by the average household as a percentage of real disposable income is significantly like about 20% below where it was before the pandemic. People are low on debt, high on cash. People just have a tendency to spend their excess money. And if they're low on debt, if their credit card bills are, or they're not getting at all uncomfortable with the credit card bills because they're low, they tend to go borrow more money and buy things. And uh, unlike commercial lending, credit card rates haven't budged a bit. They were high to begin with and they're still high, but people still use them. And 
so what what you just said is a really good way of explaining why we didn't have a recession because we had a bunch of money flow into bank accounts through stimulus programs at the same time that a bunch of money wasn't flowing into the bank account because of employment issues. Huh? Oh, yeah. Because they weren't getting paid. Uh, so they got paid by unemployment. Sometimes they got paid more from unemployment than they did in their job. And this was a, like a terror signal. Everybody's going, whoa, watch out. This is going to cause us to spend a lot of money. And what it really did, because people were scared at the time, is it caused people to save they didn't know how long that was going to continue. They didn't know how long the lockdown was going to be. They didn't know how long this high unemployment spending was going to occur. When people were complaining about it so much, it served a purpose. It, all that complaint, all of the public complaint about how much money, they're getting more than they did in their job, scared the people that were receiving it into not spending it all. They continued to buy their necessities. They're still continuing... But their savings are above what they were pre-pandemic, and they're back at work, and they're still slowly spending off the excess. You mentioned the stimulus program as a cause there. Um, studies that I've recently read said it was less than 1% of the cause, no, believe what, it or not. I'm not talking about the, the cause of inflation. No, I'm not talking about the cause of inflation right. either. The savings, the excess savings. Right. Are primarily... And be, because excess savings also exist in Europe where there was no stimulus program. No, it's no, no, no. primarily because, okay, you're shaking your head. Yeah, yeah. We had an excess in savings that we have been spending down. In Europe, they haven't been spending it down. That's, what I'm saying, that's the, what's been sustaining our economy. The surge in savings, the surge in cash on hand, mm -hmm. is primarily because people weren't going out to eat. They were eating at home, which meant they didn't spend a let me tell you, for two people at Longhorn Steakhouse, if you order wine, it's a hundred bucks, which blows my mind to say the least. It's a lot, but we increased the money in the bank by five trillion dollars. Yep. We don't eat five trillion dollars in a year at in, in all of our food put together times a hundred. So that excess money didn't get spent. At the time, people were afraid it was going to be spent. And without it, we probably wouldn't have had the inflation. But at the same time, it wasn't a contributor to the inflation. This is a weird thing. Because it was there, people felt comfortable spending more, even though they weren't spending more of their savings. Money is crazy and counterintuitive. But the fact that, you know, looking at the, the money supply, the Federal Reserve gives us how much money is out there and in circ circulation and how much is sitting in banks... So the M2 is what we generally look at because it's like certificates of deposit, it's money markets. It's And in January of 2022, we had $21.5 trillion sitting out there. And in May of 2023, we have $20.8 So we have spent more than we made without going into debt to do it, almost a trillion dollars of our savings in the last about 16 months. 18 months. That's a, that's a major amount of money. And when we look at how much the GDP is, and if we caused it to shrink by, say, half a percent, that would be about the same amount of money. And we didn't shrink half a percent. We grew at 2% this last quarter and possibly 2% again this quarter. So having that money there and having it being able to be spent in, in an astonishingly 
rational way. I don't know what got into people during the pandemic, but we really spent our money in a rational way. Even people that got it from sources that are generally considered handouts, and most people got them in handouts. And when I ask people how they used the money that they got from PPP or for their um, unemployment check, they say, oh, those other people are doing it poorly, but we did it this way. Only everybody else did it that way too. So it led to something pretty cool. Uh, And I know that's a weird situation. I would not normally condone, let's just dump a bunch of money on the economy. There is a thing on the China front that we haven't talked about yet, something that's just come out. Um, The Dutch and the Americans are teaming up to help prevent China from getting chips, certain types of chips. What does that mean? We keep hearing these little things about... Uh, technology embargoes, and we're not going to send sensitive technology to China. What are we talking about here? Uh, what is this? Because it's big in the news, and obviously we're, we on this program have talked about chips and manufacturing and our shortfalls and how China was not a reliable partner making chips during the pandemic. We couldn't sell cars because we didn't have enough chips, and we couldn't sell potato chips because we didn't have enough computer chips to run the computer potato chip machines. Uh, That literally happened. Some chips leading to chips on old blocks or otherwise. What does it mean when we're talking about limiting chips to China? Well, we just saw a whole big shipment of armaments to Chechnya from China. Chinese military equipment being sold to Chechnya. Well, where is that going to go? Where where do you think that's going to wind up? It's going to wind up in Ukraine. Um, So China is supporting Russia. Indirectly, in a way that they say, well, we're not supposed to, it's Chechnya, look over there, it's Chechnya, look, they have beards, Putin doesn't have a beard. It's not even very good misdirection. Um, So we recognize that the technology that we send to have manufactured in China, or in the manufacturing equipment to manufacture other stuff in China, might find its way into the hands and minds of people that we don't want to have it. So... We're saying, hey, we're not going to ship this stuff over there. What, is, what does that mean? Um, this is more on that front. The future doesn't look that great in China. They've made some incredible technological advancements in China in electric car manufacturing. 5G technology was theirs first. So you, we should be applauding their intellectual freedom, except that Both of those technologies, the electric car manufacturing technology and the 5G technology, which they got to before any other competitor. Anyone else in the world didn't get that. Huawei did it. How did Huawei do it? They don't have a big research department. They had the Chinese government feeding information to them from all the other chip makers that were manufacturing in China that were based otherwhere in the world. And I've talked about this particular episode uh, of intellectual property law in the past. Huawei developing 5G allowed everybody else to develop 5G too. Why? Because they used technology from about six other companies that didn't belong to them to make 5G. But then they were manufacturing it and nobody else could make 5G yet because those large number of companies were not sharing the data between each other. Well, there was this big lawsuit against Huawei that, in essence, imposed a fine for every version of 5G that it sold that would be paid to each of those other companies. In essence, the fine became a licensing fee, and all the other companies were able to use the same 
technology and pay a licensing fee fine to themselves and the others to use 5G. Same thing with with electric cars. They're, they are the number one manufacturer of electric cars on the planet. They're selling them to their own people and they're exporting them. They now export more cars than China does. And when you where, where did they come up with all this great expertise in, in selling or manufacturing cars, electric cars? Well, they got it from American technology being manufactured over there. This is not, they're not making great leaps ahead in battery technology. We are. They're not making great leaps ahead in processing technology. We are. They're using it to make stuff. And that's part of why they are not getting more chips because they're stealing ideas. And it's something we've complained about for many years, but now they're coming into direct competition with us. And when you're in direct competition and stealing the stuff as you're supposed to be a partner, it breaks the trust. I think we've spent a lot of time on China. We're almost out of time for this hour. There's more to talk about on that subject. It's not very economic oriented, but it is very uh, fascinating and has impact on on the economy. Um, uh, but we'll, we'll be talking probably some more about that next hour, but we have a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about. What are some subjects that you have in the works? Well, I want to talk more about what's going on in the economy, the GDP and the health of the economy and why it has remained so healthy. Right. I'm, I, both of us have kind of same subject there. I mean, there's a articles in the wall street journal about why is it hard to find mechanics for your car uh headline america's hot labor market fuels job growth in unexpected places those are those are signs of really good growth and we'll talk about that but it's also a sign of possible inflation to come which probably means we're getting another uh, interest rate increase in july we'll talk more about that next hour um if you would like to talk to us off the air we do give in, uh, individualized investment advice at the fiduciary level and portfolio management for people of relatively high net worth. You can contact us and get voicemail during the weekends, real live people during the week locally at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com where you can read our newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can listen to our radio program going back lots of years. Listen to podcasts wherever you find them. Email us directly or through the contact form. Our email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. Have a great weekend.